Now it's the time for the leader to qualify. Please stand when sharing so all may hear and see. We ask that you keep the focus on your recovery in this 12-step program over Eaters Anonymous. Qualify until 9.15. All right. Hi, I'm David. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Don, for asking me to speak. Um, just to qualify, I've been in OA for a little over seven years. Um, and I have five years and four months of abstinence. And my abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. Um, and I eat three meals a day and I send in my food every night. And, um, you know, in those two years of coming to program without getting abstinent, I went to a meeting probably every day. And uh, I would binge every day. And uh, the one thing that I didn't do that I'm doing now is I didn't ask for help. And uh, the first week that I got a sponsor and started working the steps, I got abstinent. And uh, I haven't binged since, which is like a complete miracle. But asking for help was the hardest thing and still is the hardest thing for me to do. Um, And it goes back to like what it was like. I come from, you know, they say if you have, they say in another program, if you have one parent, um, who's an alcoholic, you have a 50% chance of making it into the rooms. But if you have two parents, we'll save you a seat. Um, you know, so that I was born with two parents who are addicts. And uh, I grew up on Long Island in this town called Cold Spring Harbor where everything on the outside looks perfect. Um, my dad was a doctor, my mom was a psychologist, and we had this house on the water. And uh, everything, we like played the part perfectly. And, um, you know, my dad was Jekyll and Hyde, you know, straight out of the big book. People would come over for dinner and everybody knew him and Dr. G and they'd all say hi to him and love him. And then when they left, he would like turn on me, my mom and my sister and just became like a complete different person, rageaholic. Um, And he was this huge guy and he used to like chase my sister through the house and uh, would like throw her up against the wall and grab her chins and call her like a fat effing pig. And, um, you know, I always share one of the first memories I have. I was like four or five years old and he was chasing my sister through the house and he was grabbing her by the chins and I like jumped on his back um, to try to pry him off her. And he threw me up against the wall. And I remember looking across the hallway at my mom and she was standing in the hallway like by her door and she went into her room and closed the door. And that's really what it was like growing up. It was like every man for themselves, my sister like provoking my dad, my mom like in complete denial and shutting the door and me just trying to make everything okay and like getting the brunt for it. And um, I really felt like this lost child in an airport. And, um, you know, if, if you're, if, If that's happening at home, when you go to school on Monday, like you're not going to be very equipped for life. And uh, I didn't know how to raise my hand when I had something to say. Like I was so terrified of people. My first seven years of school, I didn't talk to anyone. People called me mute boy. Um, I was tested for being like mentally challenged. Like nobody knew what was wrong with me. Um, I would come, I would come to school with bruises on me and I would have to lie to like nurses. And I'd have to lie to people at school who would want to come home after, you know, for like a play date. And I just didn't know how to 
talk to people or be with people. And when I was seven years old, my dad was raging through the house again, and I crawled into bed with my mom. And I said, we need to go. And she said, I know. And I said, no, we need to go tonight. And the next morning, we like packed up our stuff and moved across Long Island. And um, like that's what it was like, like chaos. And my dad used to follow my bus home from school um, before like the court got involved and took away custody. He would follow my bus home from school. And when I was seven years old, that's when I really picked up the food. I would like see my dad and I would feel that anxiety in my heart and just like run down to the driveway. And um, what started with like going straight to the ice cream and like the scoop of ice cream, you know, they say it's progressive illness. I was quickly 60 pounds overweight. I was the fat kid in school. I got picked on. And um, all I knew was just the food. You know, it says in the AA 12 and 12 that we're given these basic instincts for a purpose. You know, the instinct for sex and for security and to be a member of society. And when, you know, we far exceed the natural purpose of these instincts, our greatest natural assets turn into liabilities. And for me, it was that instinct for security. Like, I just wanted to feel safe and loved and okay and, like, have a mom who tucked me in at night and made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with a note. And uh, I didn't get that, you know. So I went to the food, and the food became my mom and my dad and my security. And, like, the food worked. Like, thank God that the food was there. But the thing is, like, the food works until it works against you. And I didn't even know it was working against me. Um, but I'm 60 pounds overweight and everybody's making fun of me. And um, it's a whole nother set of problems being the fat kid growing up. I don't know if anyone here, I'm sure, is a fat kid growing up. But I, I think I have more post-traumatic stress disorder from being fat growing up than like growing up with an alcoholic, abusive dad. Like being fat growing up is the worst, like most shaming horrible feeling like every day just going to school and getting tormented and there was always that one girl who's funny who's now fat but like she would just pick on me and sense it, like all day long would just pick on me and um I felt like I was getting it from all angles like I hated my mom because she didn't protect us my I hated my sister because she used to provoke my dad I hated my dad and um, like school, I just I, there was just no way out. And I, I remember I used to like bang my um, bang my hand into the pillow, just being like, "Why? Like, what is wrong with me?" And uh, you know, even before I picked up the food when I was seven years old, I always had this mind that just thought something was wrong with me. Um, I remember being like five years old, standing at my grandfather's balcony in Florida, thinking, "If I jump, all my problems are going to be over." But my next thought was, but who's going to show up at my funeral? And that was like my mind as a five-year-old, like already thinking about suicide. And once I got fat, my mind just like completely got hijacked. I, I would go into the shower every morning and like pretend I had scissors and just go through my body. That's how I would start my morning with imaginary scissors cutting off the fat on my body. And... Um, it was just horrible. And, you know, so I grew up fat. I never had the girlfriend. I never really had friends. Um, and when I was like 15 years old, I found bulimia. 
And my sister also suffers from this disease, which is funny. She's sharing. She's been in and out of the rooms for 15 years, and she's sharing at her first meeting today in New York. Um, but she suffered, and I used to hear her throwing up because we had connecting rooms. And um, one, one morning I went into her room and I found her diet pills. And what started with one diet pill... Um, when I was like 13 or 14 years old, by the time I was in, by the time I was a junior in high school, I was taking 15 pills of hydroxycut every day. Um, I was a three-score athlete. I was now 30 pounds underweight. I was waking up in the morning and going to the gym and then, you know, starving all day and taking diet pills, going to sports practice and fainting and then going home, binging and then, waking up and doing it all over again. And uh, I went to the complete other side of the pendulum. And, you know, what that shows me is it's not about the food. It's really about my mind, what my mind can do to me and how my mind can hijack me. And uh, it just continued. You know, I went to five different colleges in four years, just always running from people, places, and things. And uh, just binging and purging and starving. And uh, I'll, I'll say the story. When I hit my bottom... Um, I was living in Manhattan, and I was going from every Whole Foods, just binging, binging, binging. And uh, I, I'm a numbers person, so I'd calculate how many thousands of calories I just binged, and I'd go down to my gym, and I'd exercise it off. And I wouldn't leave the gym until the number on the treadmill matched the number that I binged. And uh, it's funny, because I knew, like, everything. I could tell you, when I came into OA, I could tell you how many thousands of calories are in a jar of peanut butter. Um, I, I just knew all the numbers of totally irrelevant things. I could tell you bags of chips, peanut butter, bags of candy. Like, I knew, because that was my life. That was my higher power. All I cared about was getting food and then getting rid of it. And... Um, my best friend, just to tell a quick story, my best friend flew in um, and he was going to visit me for a weekend and I, I was going to the airport to pick him up and I stopped at Dunkin' Donuts and I had like eight donuts, chocolate milk and like four bagels and he called me from the airport and he's like, where are you? And I, I was like, you know what, man, like, fuck you, I'm not coming. And like, that is the, that is an addict, like completely spinning a story and making it about him and like I don't even know what he did but like seven years later he's coming to visit me next week and it's like the beauty of program is they get to do it again as a new character and um, you know to make a long story short I was going to kill myself um, I got kicked out of Christmas dinner um, with my family and I, I took the ferry I was in Connecticut and I took the ferry back to Long Island and I was binging my way through my mom's house, just being like, this is the final binge. Um, I haven't spoken to my dad in 10 years. Like, I have no friends. I'm failing out of college. Like, I hate my life. I can't stop binging. I can't stop purging. Um, the diet pills are turning me into a maniac. And um, I'm binging my way through my mom's house. And, you know, my mom's a therapist, so she has all the books of all the 12-step programs. And the OA 12 and 12 fell out of the pantry. And um, the miracle is not that it fell out. The miracle is that, like, in my binge mentality, like, we all know what it's like to be in that mentality of being in a binge where I'm just an animal. Like, I'm, like nothing's going to stop me 
somehow I bent over and picked up the book and I opened it up and on, on the first page um, in the preamble it says we of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating and that sentence just like completely changed my life because all my life I thought that I was just this weird like food addict and it was like God's punishment towards me um, I had no idea that other people were suffering from this too. I had no idea that there was a whole fellowship. The idea that this was a disease, like this sentence just completely revolutionized my life. And um, the next month I went to my sister and I was like, I'm a compulsive overeater and I can't stop throwing up and I think I'm going to die. And uh, she printed me out a New York City meeting list and handed me and she's like, here you go. Like you have to go to meetings. And um, I started going to meetings. And it's funny, there are people in this room who remember me from New York. Um, and the first time I shared at this meeting, Diane came up to me after, and she was in my first meeting in New York. And she's like, I didn't think you were going to make it. Like, I came in really on the edge. And, um, you know, it's all, it's all been about the steps. You know, when I first started working the steps, like, the first part of step one, I am a compulsive overeater. For me, when I put certain foods inside my body, I turn into an alcoholic. I have a physical allergy to certain foods, and my allergic reaction is I can't stop eating those foods. It's just like an alcoholic. Like I, I ju- You put it inside my body, I turn into a different person, and I just want more, and nothing's going to stop me until I get more. And... Um, You know, what it says in the big book, like, sobriety is not enough. Abstinence is not enough. Because even when I put down the food, I'm still left with my crazy mind. And uh, it's in the second part of step one, my life is unmanageable. That's my thought life. That's my mind. You know, it says in the big book, what was the thought that preceded the first drink? You know, if I didn't have a mind that told me to go to the food, I would never go to the food. My mind controls me. It hijacks me. Um and tells me to go to the food. And it tells me that the thing that is actually killing me, which is for me is flour and sugar, is going to make me feel safe. It's going to give me that security that I've been looking for. So my mind's telling me that the thing that is actually killing me is going to save my life. And that's insanity. And for me, that's the jaywalker. That, for me, is the story of the jaywalker. Like, my mind tells me to walk across the street and get hit by a car. And I I keep getting hit but my mind tells me this time's going to be different and this time I can handle, you know, and this time I can make it across the street. My mind comes up with all sorts of stories. You know, this time I can just have one bite. This time I can just do it. You know, maybe I don't have carbs after 6 o'clock. You know, all the things um, that my mind tries to do to, you know, trick me. And, you know, if my mind's lying me, lying to me about the food, like, I don't think it's going to stop there. My mind is probably lying to me about every other area of my life as well. And um, I have to start looking at my thought life when I start step one. Like, my mind is completely warped. And it says in the literature, it's easy for me to admit um, that I'm an addict with the substances, but it's a little more difficult for me to see that I'm mentally ill. But if I take a look at my mind, even today with like five and a half years of abstinence, if I get stuck at a red light, like my mind just goes to like, how do I get out of here? Like, this isn't okay. Let me cut through the gas station. Let me cut corners. 
Um, or if I'm at like Trader Joe's and there's the guy in front of me has 15 items at the 12 item line, like it's just not okay. Or if I get an itch on my arm, my mind thinks it's like my mind just goes to worst case scenario all the time. Um, and it's insane. And I really have to look at my mind in the day that I'm in. You know, this isn't who I was when I came in. This is who I am today. Like, who I am today is I wake up with a mind that completely warps my perception of my reality and completely poo-poo-poos all over my recovery and all over my life. And it says, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to get the blank I want. I'm never going to get the this I want. The job's never going to work out for me. And then I get all of those things. And then that's not good enough. And then I have a new set of problems. And, um, you know, I can't fix a broke mind with a broke mind. And when I get into step two, like, I really have to get grounded in step one, two, and three before getting into a step four. Because if I'm in self-will when I get into an inventory, it's going to be really painful. So for me, like, step one... I have a mind that's completely warped and I can never eat those substances again. But step two, like come to believe that a power greater than me is going to restore me to sanity. I'm not going to do that unless I really accept in my heart that I'm mentally ill. Like why am I going to come to believe that there's something that's going to restore me to sanity if I don't think that I need restoration? Like I'm mentally ill in the day that I'm in and I need to talk to something that's not me to help me. And um, it's a relationship. Like, and when I came in here, I didn't believe in God. I didn't know how to have a relationship with other people. So it would be once in the morning, I would say the serenity prayer and ask for help. And like, the more that I do that, the more that I talk to this power, the more that I get relief in all areas of my life. And like today, I, you know, there's this statistic, I don't know if it's true, but neuroscientists say that addicts have 40,000 thoughts, or normal people have 40,000 thoughts a day, but addicts have four thoughts that we think about 40,000 times. (laughs) And for me, you know, my thoughts change. A couple years ago, my thoughts were all like, when am I going to get the girlfriend? Like, if Diva remembers, like, it was all like, when am I going to get the girl? Like, where is she? And, um... Then, like, I reach a state of surrender with those four thoughts, and then, like, the thing comes. And then I have a new problem, and now it's about work. Like, when is, the, when is it going to happen for me? When is it going to happen? And I just obsess over it, and I check my emails, and I try to self-will. And um, I have to pray those 40,000 negative thoughts out of me every single day because they're with me all day long, and I have to pray all day long it says in Sermon on the Mount like prayer is the only thing that's going to change our character Um, I have to pray all day long and I do I live in a state of talking to God today like God can you protect me from my mind today did you hear that thought my mind's trying to take me down can you be with me God like I'm so scared right now can you just hold me God can you speak through me God Um, can you help me be of service God because I'm so self-centered Um, Can you get me out of self? And, you know, five minutes. Thank you. I bring this power everywhere, like in my relationship. Like, God, can you help me be of service? And all of a sudden, like, I have a beautiful relationship that's centered on service and, like, me giving back. And I find that when I give and when I'm out of my thinking, like, I'm able to accept a beautiful reality. And, um, you know, step three for me 
It's like I'm either in fear or I'm in love. And if I'm in fear, I'm in my self-will and I'm in my thinking. And if I'm in love, I'm in my heart. But like even to get into my heart, like when I put down the food, there are so many other things that take me away from feeling good. You know, they say in in another program, um, you can't stay clean but live dirty. And for me, it's like I can't eat clean but live dirty. And what that means for me is like, I have to be a good person. I have to do right and I have to think harmonious thoughts. Like, if I'm thinking murderous thoughts on the freeway, like, that's just as bad as as acting on those thoughts. Like, I have to pray for other people today. Um, And I've had to let go of a lot of things that take me out of this connection with God. Like, I can't do Facebook anymore. But I have to get, like, really self-honest about, like, what's taking me away from feeling good? Like, yeah, certain foods alcohol, smoking, toxic relationships, Facebook, TV, XM radio. Like there are so many things that I want to do, but they don't make me feel good. And I have to let go of them. And when I do let go of them, I live in this beautiful like existence where compulsive overeating is not like an option. Um, And I came in here, I didn't speak to my dad for 10 years, and through the process of this program, like, I've made amends to him. He's now in program. Um, Like, we talk every single week. It's like, but I had to pray my way into forgiveness for him. Like, that took a lot of work and prayer. And uh, back in December, I flew back to New York, and I got lunch with him. And he said, like, I just want to hold your grandbaby one day. And um, I know your sister is never going to let me, but I have faith that you will. And that's like the power of this program. Like, I don't have to carry bags of resentment with me everywhere I go anymore. Like, I live pretty free. There's not one person, if I see them on the sidewalk, I'm going to cross to the other side. Um, and like, my life is pretty damn good today. And I've grown up in this program. I came in here when I was 21 years old. And um, I've learned how to be a man in this program. I've learned how to ask for help in this program. I've learned how to take other people through the steps. I've learned how to show up for other people. You know, I have a sponsee. I was there the first day his baby was born, holding him in the hospital. You know, I show up for other people. I take through other people through the steps. And um, I really try to stay in the center of the herd. Like, I'm not better or worse than anybody. And if I come into program and if I have a judgment about the speaker, and I'm judging other people's share, like, I have to go back to God. I I need God. I just did another fourth-step resentment. So much of it is about program. Like, people who don't thank me after meetings, people who don't share recovery. Like, I need God in the rooms, too. Like, I need to bring God into my seat. And uh, recovery doesn't just seep up through through the seats. Um, I have to actually do the work. And... I really do the work in this program. Um, one day at a time, like, I call my sponsor every day. I call other people. I work the steps daily. I pray and meditate. I go to a meeting almost every day. I have commitments. And um, I just keep coming back. And I would say 98% of the time, I am completely relieved of the food obsession. Like, complete, you know, my girlfriend started a challah baking company called Flour and Sugar. And, uh, I don't eat flour and sugar. Um, 
But it says in the big book, like, if you're, if you're armed with the facts and you're connected to a higher power, you can go anywhere. You can go to the depths of hell. I can, like, you can go to a bar if you're focused on being of service. And it's like, for me, I can clean the dishes and I don't have to lick my hands. Like, if I just focus on being of service, I'm out of self. And when I'm in self is when I want to go to the food. But if I'm out of self, like, that's not an option for me. And, um... I just want to say thank you. Like, I've, I've, I can't express enough how I've grown up in this program. Like, I was really a boy when I came in here. And um, I don't have secrets anymore. There's nothing that I sweep under the rug anymore. And um, thank you for letting me share. This is time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share... Please do so with any of us after the meeting. Please remember the opinions of the leader are my own, not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Yeah. The question was, what do I attribute from then to now um, as my change to being a human being? The change in in me. um, Getting a higher power. Like, I came into OA really not believing in God. Um, And through the steps, finding this higher power has given me a strength where I can go into situations which I never would have gone into. I can go into meetings. Um, I can reunite with my dad. Like, I can go... I feel like I can go any... I can travel around the world. Like, I'm able to live now because I have this relationship with a higher power. Um, and before that, I was just driven by fear. Like, I couldn't talk to people. I couldn't look at people, I couldn't ask people out, like, I was just completely driven um, by this fear, and when when I'm living with a higher power, that fear subsides. Jeff? First, let me say thank you, so I don't end up under your desk. Secondly, you talked a lot about what you don't eat. Tell us about what and how you do eat. Great question. What and how do I do I eat? Um, so I did a red light, yellow light, green light food. For me, um, what's on my green light? I don't know. Abstinence is a loose garment. I eat three meals a day. Um, I pray. Every, before I eat, I pray. Um, not that this is enough, but that I'm enough. Because I don't... I, I, when I tend to overeat, it's because I don't feel like I'm enough. So I have to compensate with food that's more than enough. Um, I eat, what do I eat, Josh? I eat salads. Um, I eat Mexican food every Friday night. I, don't, I eat like pretty healthy, um, but not crazy healthy. Um, for breakfast, I have the same breakfast every morning. Wherever I go, wherever I am in the world, I've gone to Israel, I've brought it with me. Like for me, having that breakfast, because um, 
before I came into program, like I, the breakfast was the hardest thing for me because if I had a bad breakfast, my whole day was fucked. Um, so I have oatmeal um, with protein powder and a banana every day for breakfast. And uh, that, I've done a lot of experimentation finding what works for me. I've tried eggs, I've tried Ezekiel bread, I've tried way different variations of like a good breakfast, but that for me is what keeps me full and like makes me feel good. So lunch and dinner is always different, but I make sure I have the same breakfast wherever I go. And that's been like huge for me. Yeah. You you said it took you two years to ask for help. Can you expand on that? What what, what changed for you when you were able to reach out and ask for help? How, How was that process? The question was, what changed for me when I finally asked for help after well, not... What, what, what allowed you to... What allowed me to ask for help? Um, I kept getting worse in program. And, you know, they say it's like the mafia. Once you leave, you can never not... You can never... You know. Um, and I was in program binging, knowing that there was a solution. I would go to Trader Joe's every day, binging in the parking lot of all the food that I just ate while listening to podcasts. So I knew that there was, it was driving me nuts. I knew that there was a solution and I knew that the only thing stopping me from getting it was me. Um, and they say, find a sponsor who has what you want, which still to this day is like one of the only sentences I don't like because as an addict who's been an addict my whole life, I don't know what I want. What I want, what I wanted was uh, married, white, I was doing like the J-Day thing. I'm white, Jewish, married, um, successful man. Um, and what I got was a lesbian woman who was black, who didn't have a car and who drove on the bus to meet me to go through the steps with me. And um, she completely changed my life. So I don't know what I want. I don't know what's right for me. Um, seven years later, I do have the sponsor who I wanted when I first came in, but I, it's for different reasons. So, um, I don't know if that answered your question at all. Michael. Thanks, Dave. So, I'm curious specifically um, how your amends came out with your dad, how with the process that we went through, how specifically, and then, because I was raised by a rager as well, and it kind of followed me through my other relationships. So does that follow you in your current relationship? That's a great question. Um, The question was specifically about the amends with my dad. And my dad being a rager, does that follow me into my current relationship? Um, My first time I went through the steps, my sponsor said, he's an abuser. You don't have to make amends to him. Don't even, like, look at that amends. Um, and then I got a new sponsor um, when I had a year of abstinence and we went through the steps again and it was really coming up. And he's like, you need to make amends because you're drinking poison and expecting other people to get hurt. Um, so I really had to pray for the willingness to be willing to make amends to my dad. Um, and I did that for months. I prayed for the willingness to be willing. And um, one day I just found myself on my knees praying for my dad and like meaning it. And uh, I had tried for months, like, getting on my knees, and it was just a block when I tried to pray for him. And uh, months after that, I flew back to New York, and um, I said, Dad, we, we met 
for lunch and I said, I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And I said, Dad, um, I cut you out of my life for 10 years and that's a pattern that I do in all of my relationships and I don't want to do that anymore. Um, so how can I make that up to you? And he said, well, I'd like to start having a relationship with you. And we started having a phone relationship. And from there, it's just grown and grown. Um, and does that follow me into my current relationship? I'm on the other end. My sister's a rager. A rager. I'm, um, I guess you would call it like I shut down. Um, whenever there's confrontation or um, like an argument, I shut down and then I run. Um, I'm in another program for that. I, I, I don't, I do that. I used to, I used to shut down and run for weeks. Um, and I wouldn't be, I would be physically back in the relationship, but I wouldn't be emotionally open for weeks. And now it's like 30 minutes or like 15 minutes. Um, something will happen and I'll shut down and then I can open up again. So the time where I've been allowed to open up again has completely like gotten smaller. Yeah, Don Lentero. What's your concept of a higher power today? Um, what's my concept of a higher power today? I still don't know. Um, it's more, you know, it's it's been my experiences. Um, having the waking up one morning, like being like, wow, the obsession to compulsively overeat has been removed. Um, feeling forgiveness in my heart for my dad. Like my current relationship where I really feel like unconditional love. Like all these different experiences have gone into my conception of a higher power. Um, and it's a feeling. When I'm con- I know when I'm connected. Um, I feel it. I'm not in judgment. I'm not overthinking it. But I don't have like a religious God or um, I don't know. If I knew, then I don't think it would be God. <laughs> Sarah? Um, what do you get out of service? What do I get out of service? It's, what do I get out of service? This is a great question. Um, when I came in, I was so self-centered and com- completely driven by fear that being of service... Um, I used to go to those 8,000 sunset meetings every morning, and I would set up. And it would get me, it, would, it brought me a community. Like, I had a place to go every morning where, you know, they say building, you build self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. Like, I started slowly building my self-esteem by doing that service. And then it grew from there of, like, speaking at meetings. And I start to feel better about myself because I'm getting out of myself. Um, but then around like year two and three, I went into like super alanonic OA person where I, I probably spoke at like 150 meetings and like was sponsoring 10 people. I went completely crazy with service where I was not focused. I was not putting myself first. Um, so that's been a huge lesson for me where service is so important because it gets me out of self, but I can't be of service to everyone. You know, I have a sponsor in another program. She said something like, um, it's like going to a kennel. You can look at the dogs and be like, wow, I want to help them. But if you're taking home all the dogs, like you're going to get eaten. 
you're going to get dragged by your character defects. Like, I, can o- I really can only sponsor three to four people at a time. And people, I used to say to people, you, you weren't full when you were compulsive overeating. Like, that was my motto. But for me, like, I had to find out what rings true for me. And I really have had to learn how to put the oxygen mask on myself first before giving to other people. So for me, service is a tool. And um, I do it to get out of myself. But I don't do it all day long to the point where I'm not even looking at myself. Um, the question was, what meeting where I started uh, shutting down less in the window? Uh, Alan. Oh. Okay. You mentioned uh, that when you were younger, you used to, you know, the imaginary system you were talking about, and take that out your body. Do you still have any struggles with body image? Uh, the question is, do I have struggles with body image? Um, Exercise was a huge struggle for me. Um, when I came in, I was still like exercising. I needed to exercise every day. I was always training for something. I've never run a marathon, but I was always like training for a marathon. <laughs> I was in an all year round like training. And um, I really had to bring God. You know, layers of the onion get peeled the more I stick around. I, I, I haven't done anything. God d- does it for me. Um, to the point now where I can't really exercise anymore. Like, I haven't run in two years because I have this, like, weird foot thing. Um, and that, if you told me that when I came in, I would, I would have, that wouldn't have been possible. But, like, that's just God teaching me how to keep my feet on the ground and stay, you know, be present. But I don't really suffer from body image anymore. Um, but when I do, I know what to do. I, I just get out of self right away. Because body image for me is just self-obsession. Peter. Um, do you sponsor people? And if so, when did you feel that it was the right that you were ready to sponsor? Do I sponsor people? And when did I feel like I was ready to sponsor people? Um, I started sponsoring people around a year in, and I was a horrible sponsor. Because um, why aren't they doing it the way that I think it should be done? And uh, I think now, five and a half years in, I'm finally learned how... I don't know how to sponsor. I feel like finally I'm, I, I, I'm confident about how I sponsor, which is I don't really do anything other than sit with them and give them time to figure it out for themselves. Like, if I don't even know how to run my own life, I do not know how anyone else runs their life. Um, but it took me a long while to get to the point where I don't give advice anymore. I don't, you know, once in a while I'll say this is what works for me, but usually, like, a sponsee just needs time to figure it out themselves. Um, so my first year, I was a horrible sponsor, um, but I've gotten better. <laughs> yeah. What about your work life? How has that been impacted by 
Oh, man. Um, how has my work life been impacted by the steps? I work in the entertainment industry, and um, I was on a project for two years, which was completely toxic, and everybody was an addict. And um, I really had to bring God into there. And um, my boss was having an affair and with someone who he really shouldn't have been having an affair with. And I would go home and like cry about it every night. And I was like, why am I crying about this? And I realized that I never really dealt with affairs that happened in my family. So like, it always is a mirror for me. Um, right now I'm riding like a roller coaster of unknown. And that's probably the biggest area of my life where I'm still in self-will is my career. Um, and how I deal with that is I call Josh every day and I say I'm in self-will and we pray over the phone and it's a daily reprieve right now for me of getting out of self-will around work. How did you choose your sponsor and what matters most in that relationship? Now? My sponsor now? Um, how did I choose my sponsor now and what matters most in that relationship? Uh, so like I said, what I wanted was like this wish list of J-Day credentials. What I wanted now is someone who has um, a service commitment at a meeting and is solid there. So I know that like he's working his program. Because in program, I've had this like fear that my sponsor is going to like relapse and then what am I going to do? Um, so I need to know my sponsor is working a program and I want someone who's just going to tell me to go back to God. Um, I think I've been with Josh like three years now in the beginning. He would just say, what does God think about this? Have you prayed about it? And I want like, give me the answers. Like, tell me what to do. And I realize like, there's a reason why he's just bringing me back to God. Um, so I want a sponsor who's not telling me what to do, but showing me how to get to where I need to go. What would you say to somebody who has difficulties with God, the concept of God and all the God references in the Um What would I say to someone who has difficulties with God? That's my time. Um... <laughs> I would use my own experiences and say, believe me, I was anti-God when I came in here. Um, but the proof is in the pudding. So thank you.